Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. Uh, this morning, we continue in the book of Genesis, and so uh, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, there should be at the back table, a little black table right as you came in, a Genesis uh, journal Bible, and if there's not, we'll be sure to get you one after the service. That is our gift to you. That is free. Uh, take that, and on the sides of that, you'll notice that there are some spaces for you to journal, so you can actually write your notes down right there in that book, and it's just the book of Genesis, so it's a great companion as we're going through Genesis, and we will be in Genesis for a good portion of 2023. So uh, be sure to grab that as our gift to you. Uh, And this morning, we're looking at Abram's story and Abram's journey. And Abram's story is such a microcosm, or kind of this small story of what our story is like. Um, Abram's journey of faith throughout his life really resembles how you and I try to follow God, because at times, all of us feel like we're wandering. All of us feel like we're moving Towards something. Sometimes we can't put our finger on it. Sometimes we believe God is doing something in our lives, but we really don't know what yet. We're trying to put our finger on it. Um, God's made these great promises, but he hasn't exactly filled in all the details. And so uh, for Abram, there were times of faith. We looked at Genesis 12 verses 1 through 9 two weeks ago and saw how God had made this promise and this covenant to Abram that I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great so that you're a blessing to all people and all people will be blessed by blessing you. I mean, this incredible promise. And Abram believes that. He says, yes, Lord, I believe this. I will go. I'll leave my family, my kindred, everything I know. I'll leave all the good barber shops and barbecue places, and I'm going to this land that I don't know. And so he decides to go. And like that, we have times of faith. There are times that you are just rock solid following after God. You trust and you believe in what God is doing. There are other times, like Abram, that we fail. We looked at this last week, that sometimes we just make giant mistakes. Uh, And Abram made a massive mistake that derailed his family and had some major consequences that even years, 20 years later in his life. And we saw in Genesis 12, verse 10, through the beginning of chapter 13, how he gives in to fear, he loses focus upon the Lord and makes fear-based decisions that lead to pain. And we do the same thing. Sometimes we just mess up. We, we, we screw up. We, we lose focus on the fact that God will provide for us, so we try to provide for ourselves. We lose focus on the fact that God would actually forgive us, and so we run away from his forgiveness and try to hide away. But in the same way that God pursued Abraham and continued to pursue Abraham, Christ is always pursuing us. The Spirit is always pursuing us and calling us back to Jesus, reminding us of what Christ has done for us. And that's a major theme that runs throughout the entire Bible is though we are sinful, though we are wayward, though we are wandering, God is always coming after his people. And so we enter into that. And so we see this with Abram. God calls him back over and over again after every stumble and every fall and all the ways that he sinned against his wife and all the ways that he sinned against his his family and all the ways he forgot God's uh, promises. And so the real question is, is, then how should Abram respond to his failure? If you look at the end of chapter 12, we really don't see how Abram responds. He just gets kicked out of Egypt. And so the question for us as well is when you fail, when you sin against God, what do you do next? What's the next step that you can take? Now, when it comes to conflict, you've probably heard of a couple of these. There are fight and flight. 
Uh, some of us are fighters. We get backed into a corner and we come out, we bow up, we start arguing, we stand 10 feet tall, and we are going to win that argument. We're going to win in that conflict. I, you know, you don't understand. I was just angry. You cut me off. You did this. We, we tend to fight. Some people are flight people. Uh, when conflict enters the room or you fail, you just run as far as you can run. You hide, you hide under the covers. You watch 12 seasons of, you know, the America's Top Model or whatever. Like you just dive right in and you are avoiding the, the failure. I'm not saying I've done that. I'm just saying. There, but there are also two others that have come into kind of psychological language and those are fawn and freeze. So fawn is to kind of try to be a people pleaser. And so instead of actually being sorry, you just do whatever you can to make the other person feel better about what happened. You make overpromise. You do all sorts of things. But then also there's just, we freeze. We just paralyze. We don't, we're not even sure what to do. And in that moment, right after you sin, right after you mess up, right after you fail, there is a moment of clarity. You have this moment of clarity that I, I really messed up. And what you do next is really important. What you do next is vital. And so we see this in Abram and Lot. We see a right way and a wrong way to deal with failure. And that is the process of repentance. How do you truly know that you are sorry? Well, the first thing Abram does and that we should do is return to the Lord, to come to the Lord, to turn towards him. We see in chapter 13, verse one, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and Lot with him into the Negev. So Abram gets kicked out of Egypt. He's had this massive failure. He has egg on his face. Pharaoh's really mad at him. He's lucky Pharaoh didn't throw him in jail or kill him. Um, he leaves with public shame because of some really stupid decisions. And you got to imagine this is not a short journey. Have you ever been on a car ride, on a, on a road trip, and got into an argument with the person you're in a car with? And first you're yelling at each other, and then you sit there in tense silence for hours. Can you imagine the tense silence as Abram is riding back toward the promised land with Sarai, his wife? who he just sold out to for a bunch of camels and donkeys and servants. Can you imagine how tense that must have been, this awkward silence? It's probably eating Abram alive, thinking about this the whole way back. And so notice what he does as soon as he enters in. We see in verse 2 that he, is, he, he prospered for this. He's very rich. But then verse 3, chapter 13, verse 3, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. So what he does is he retraces his steps. He goes from a place of failure to returning to the Lord. He goes between Bethel and Ai. And notice what it says in the next part of the beginning of verse 4, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. So Abram returns to the Lord. What, what's he doing here? He, he's not living off an old experience. It's easy for us when we fail to look back to a golden era in our lives where everything was easier. Man, before I did this or before I was in this relationship or before I, when I had that other job or I lived in this other place, that was what was the good life. And if I can just somehow get back to that place, then everything's going to be okay. But what's the problem with looking at the past as our savior? You always look at it with rose-colored glasses. That situation was never as good as you remember. That relationship was never quite as rosy and, and you know, peaceful as you could remember. But in Christ, if we have the promises that God has offered us, that means that our brightest days are ahead of us. 
And so we can look to tomorrow and we can face today because God's mercies are new for us each morning. And so what Abram is doing is he's returning to receive the new mercies that God has already promised him. He returns to a, to a life-giving habit. And it says here at the end of verse 4 that he goes to this place, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. He does the same thing he did before, remembering that this is what is going to lead to life. He remembers that he can stand today on the promises that God has made. And what this does is it shows us that when we return to the Lord, we don't return to the Lord just groveling. We don't return to the Lord trying to make amends, saying, God, I'll I'll do so much better next time. We we don't make vows to, to never do it again. Now, there's a place for that in repentance. There's a place for that in reconciliation. That's just the wrong starting place. What is Abram doing at the very beginning of repenting? He worships. He takes time to stop and to worship the Lord because worship is the starting point for repentance. Now, if you're not familiar with the word repent, it just means to turn around. It means to do a 180. Best way I can describe it here in Boston is you're driving down High Park Avenue, you miss Dunkin' Donuts, you bang a Yui, and you turn around. That is repentance. You realize you're going the wrong direction and you turn around. To repent is to turn away from hoping and trusting in one thing to 180 toward hope and trust in something better. And so we're called to, in worship, repent and quit trusting in something else and to trust in Jesus alone. But if I'm honest, the last thing that I want to do when I sin sometimes is worship. The last thing I want to do is go before God or go before God's people, sit in a room like this and, and be around others. I sometimes don't want to go to church. I'm, I'm the pastor here. I'm mean, like, wow, the pastor doesn't want to come to church sometimes. Sometimes I'm having a terrible week. Sometimes I don't want to turn to God's word. Sometimes I don't want to pray when I sin. Because what happens when we sin is we get racked with guilt and shame and fear in such a way that we say, well, I, I can't worship God. I, I can't worship him. I'm not worthy enough to worship him. That's the point. You never were worthy enough to worship him. You never were good enough to draw into his presence. But the point is, is when we sin, you're trying to find life somewhere other than where God promised it would be found. And ultimately, that's a failure to worship. Think all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. What did Adam and Eve do? They forgot God's promises, they failed to worship him, and they turned to something else. And in the same way, we do this. So repentance is an invitation to admit our failure, to turn away and come find life in Jesus, to worship him. And so when we think about worship, there's a cycle to our repentance. There's a cycle to worship. The false repentance cycle, and you'll see this, should see this on the screen. Um, this is a late edition there. It made it in good. Um, um, the false repentance cycle looks like this, as you sin, you have a failure. And what immediately happens if you don't give it to the Lord, you don't turn to him first, is you just kind of say, I can't believe I did that. I, I can't believe that I messed up like that. I can't believe that I did that again. Well, when you say that, what are you actually saying? I shouldn't have, had to, I shouldn't have done it in the first place. I, I could have stopped myself from doing that in my own strength. And so what happens in a false repentance cycle is we go from failure to saying, well, I can't believe I I, I did that, to now I need to do some acts of penance. Now I need to make it better. Now I need to stack up more good deeds than bad deeds so that I feel better about myself. Anybody else ever been there? Just me? Okay. And then what begins to happen, instead of Jesus 
taking away your sin and forgiving it and your sin being atoned for and your shame being taken away, your guilt and your shame just fades. You feel better because you begin to put trust in yourself again and then what eventually happens? You just fail. We get in this constant cycle of shame and guilt and fear. We feel pretty good about ourselves. We fail. We kick ourselves when we're down. We try to do better and then we kind of feel better again and sin again. But then there's, there's a difference in this. When it comes to our guilt, we are all trying to outperform our guilt. I was listening to, uh, to ESPN radio years ago, and it was during the performance-enhancing drug scandal in baseball, and they were talking about a player, and they said, yeah, he's guilty, but if he hits 335, hits 35 home runs, hits 112 runs batted in, no one's going to remember this because performance has a way of making us forget about our guilt. We try to perform to overcome our guilt, but what if there was real freedom from our guilt? What if there was real freedom for our shame? What if there's real freedom when you failed? And this is what genuine repentance looks like. Genuine repentance admits, I failed. I I messed up. But what I'm going to do first is I'm going to worship. I'm going to worship. I'm going to turn to the Lord and say, God, you alone are good. You alone are worthy. You alone are sinless. And then I'm going to confess. And confession is messy, just like this graphic. I'm I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to admit that now that I've seen your holiness and your goodness and your righteousness, that I don't match up, that I never could have been good enough on my own. Then we move from confession to remembering the goodness and the promise of God that he would give a son for us to die in our place, that we could be forgiven. And then what that actually allows us to do is to break out of that cycle to a place of faithfully obeying by the power of the Spirit. That's what genuine repentance looks like. We can't overcome our guilt. So the question is, is where are you this morning? Maybe you are coming out of Egypt. Maybe you are coming out of a failure. This morning is a great first step for you to be here among God's people because God welcomes us as we're brokenhearted. He welcomes us when we're hurting and when we failed and he gives us grace. But if you're in that place, know that you're also at a pivotal moment. What will you return to? You can return to your own self-effort or your, or your own autonomy, or you can turn to the Lord who forgives and mends every wound. So Abram returns to the Lord. He begins the repentance process. But secondly, he seeks to avoid the same mistakes that he made before. Look, everybody has a tendency. Everybody has a tell. Um, if you play poker, you understand you watch somebody across the table long enough, they have a tell. They touch their ear. Um, if you ever watch the movie Rounders, uh, there's this one guy who's the Russian and uh, Matt Damon's character can't beat him until he understands that whenever he messes with his Oreos, um, and they were like single stuff Oreos, not even double stuff Oreos, you can tell he's evil by that. And so whenever he messes with his Oreos, he has a good hand. Well, Matt Damon eventually figures that out because everybody has a tendency. If you listen to Taylor Swift, she has a tendency to blast her exes on every album. Everybody has a tendency. And in the same way, every one of us has a sin that we tend toward. Every one of us has a a type of disobedience that we are drawn to, that we default to when we're stressed, when we're tired, when we're anxious, when our lives feel out of control. Now, for some, that's addiction. It could be addiction to to, to drugs or alcohol. It could be addiction to pornography. It could be addiction to to, to your cell phone. It could be addiction to anything. For others, it's a pattern. You, you, You tend to avoid or you attack 
It could be that you, if you're dating, you tend to date the same type of people over and over and over again, hoping that you won't repeat yourself in this. Abram's tell, or his tendency, was that when it felt like God was not going to provide, he panicked and tried to do it on his own. Time and time again, Abram does this. We see this in Genesis 12, verse 10, that a famine comes into the land. He panics, he goes to Egypt, he tries to provide for himself. We'll see a little bit later in Genesis 15 through 17 that it's been... 20 years, and Abram's waiting for a son. And he's like, well, how do I have a nation if I can't have a son? And he tries to take things into his own hands. But here we see where Abram succeeds. There's a similar temptation, but a different circumstance. There's a similar temptation to see where God may not be providing and then also take into his own hands. Because we see in chapter 13, verse 2, that now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. We see in chapter 13, verse 5, that also that Lot, his nephew, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And so they were both loaded. They came out of Egypt, they had more money and possessions and stuff than they could ever possibly need. And it caused so much stress that in verse 6, we see so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great, they could not dwell together, or as the notorious B.I.G. once said, more money, more problems. And so they have all sorts of issues, so much so that in verse 7, that there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock, and they weren't even alone. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So we see all sorts of stress being brought into their situation. Now, it's a, it's a different trial. Before, they were, they were poor, but now they're wealthy. And when we're faced with recurring temptation and trials, it reveals whether the gospel is getting deep into our hearts. And we see it in what they desire most. Abram does something completely mind-blowing. He ends up giving Lot the choice. Verse 8 He says, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. This is absolutely insane because he could have told Lot to kick rocks. He could have said, I'm the oldest. I'm your uncle. I get what I want and you get the leftovers. But he didn't do that. He chose to be a peacemaker above having prosperity. He had seen how greed and fear had wrecked his family, had strained his marriage, and he makes the decision not to quarrel. And it sounds a lot like what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, where he says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know, they breed quarrels. Let's not fight over who has the most land. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. He knows that he could either win the battle or win the war. He could either win the argument or win his nephew, hoping that maybe if he just makes peace that possibly a good resolution could come out because he realized that someone had to choose humility. Someone had to end the fighting and that it was best for them to simply just separate. Alistair Begg, he says that tension is always removed from confrontation when one party acts selflessly. What allowed Abram to do this? To to trust the Lord and to be selfless, to, to lay all of his rights down, it's because the gospel frees you to trust and believe that everything you need, God will provide. 
It allowed him to loosen his grip on people and possessions and allowed him to love and seek the good of his nephew above his own good. But Lod acts completely different. He reacts selfishly. He doesn't even say, hey, thanks, Unc. Thank, thank you, Uncle, for, for being so generous. He jumps right in in verse 10, and he says that he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. So he looks, and before he can even say thank you, he says, I want that. I want that. He repeats the, the Egypt situation again, but he's faced with a different reason. He doesn't make a decision based on fear. He makes a decision based on discontentment. He's discontent because what it shows us is that money can, ne there's never enough money. There, there, there's never enough happiness. There's never enough satisfaction. There's never a good enough job. There's never a perfect enough companion to satisfy a discontent heart. Lot fails to return to the Lord. And what the worst thing you can possibly do when your heart is discontent is to go looking, is to go looking for something else. He looked and he saw. Have you ever done that? You've had a really stressful day and you find your way to Amazon. And then how did these 30 boxes show up in my house? We, we all, we, we, it's like retail therapy. We shop. We avoid. He looks and he sees the land. He, he looks and he sees it. And he, he has the, it's the exact same wording as, as Eve in Genesis chapter three. She looked and she saw that the fruit was good for food. She wanted something with a desire that was beyond what it should have been. He looked at the Jordan Valley and said, it is lush, it is green, it's like Egypt. This is where prosperity comes from. And this is also where the phrase that the grass is greener on the other side, or is not always green on the other side, comes from. The best choice is not always the most obvious choice. It takes discernment and wisdom. And so Lot's choice was based on worldly wisdom, not godly wisdom. He faced a decision whether to deny himself and to serve others or to serve himself and deny others. And friends, it, you are going to face all kinds of decisions like this in life. Jeremiah 17 teaches us that our hearts are deceitful above all things, which means that you can't always trust your deepest desires. You can't always trust your deepest wants. You can't always trust yourself about what you think will make you happy. It will get you in trouble. And what this means is that the dream job or the bigger paycheck or the bigger city may seem obvious, but they may not be right. It doesn't mean that they're not. But we have to do the hard work of discerning in our hearts the reason why we want those things. What if it takes us to the wrong place? We see at the end of verses 12 and 13 that it led Sodom to a very, or led um, a lot to a very sinful place in Sodom. Maybe you're looking for the, the perfect someone to, to date or to marry, but all your non-negotiables are worldly qualities and not godly qualities. So here are the questions you can ask yourself when you're making these decisions. Will this help me to serve others or ultimately to serve myself? Secondly, what new idols and temptations will this expose me to? Well, we see Abram react differently. In verses 14 through 18, he, God calls him to lift up his eyes. He's saying, literally, look at me and remember the promises that I've given you. What made Abram and what allows us to make countercultural, other-centered, kingdom-advancing decisions is fixing our eyes on the finished work of Christ. Abram took less. He went to an arid mountain instead of the lush land of the Jordan Valley, and God provided there. 
God promises to provide in hard places if that's where he's called us. This is what allowed Dr. King in his last speech to say that he did not fear death nor cherish life too much, but he said, my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. What if God doesn't want you to make more money? What if he doesn't want you to have it easier? But what he wants is you to trust and depend upon him. When you turn from your sin, what do you turn to? If you're not turning to Jesus, you turn back to yourself. We can tend to go to the same patterns. But next, Abram shows that he has understood God's grace. Then The next opportunity he had was to live out the grace that he'd received. Now, chapter 14, we're going to be looking at chapter 14 as well today, um, is kind of a strange intermission. You look at the beginning of this and you're dropped into this geopolitical conflict with a bunch of names that you cannot pronounce. And to kind of sum this up a little bit, you have the five kings from the west stop paying taxes to the five ki- four kings in the east. The eastern kings win this battle and they end up taking Lot in the process. So Lot gets taken by them. It reveals that Lot made an awful decision. I can make a really bad dad joke that he made a lot of awful decisions. Uh, it was too good. Where's David when I need him? Um, but as Alistair Begg said, he said there's a fascinating nugget here in chapter 13, verse 12, and 14, 12. There's a fascinating nugget because if you look at chapter 13, 12, it says, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. So it's almost like he's, as on the, he's on the edge of Sodom. But if you look at chapter 14, verse 12, it says, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. So he had got right on the edge of temptation, and now he's found himself right in the middle of it. He's stuck right in the middle of this. And this is why flirting with temptation and sin never ends there. It always ends in trouble. It's like telling a child who's standing too close to the edge of the pool, you're going to fall in. What eventually happens? They fall in. That's why we're warned to not make worldly decisions by flirting with temptation. And the reason of this is that our hearts lie to us. And this is why we need other people who love us and who are willing to come after us when we sin, when we mess up. And that's what Abram does for Lot. He takes the good news, the gospel that he's received, and then applies it for the sake of his his nephew. He gets word in in chapter 14, uh, verse 13, that that they've captured his nephew Lot, They've taken him away, and we see that he mounts up, he goes in verses 14 through 16, and we see that he goes to great lengths. He goes 120 miles all the way towards Damascus. He goes at great cost, and he takes 318 of his trained men to go with him, and he goes at great risk, because he is massively outgunned. You look at this, 318 trained Navy SEALs going up against five armies. They they come up with a strategy, they end up defeating them, But what allowed Lot to pursue and go after, or Abram to pursue and go after Lot? It's because he realized that God had done the same for him. God came after Abram when he was away from his presence. He gave generously to Abram even when he was not generous. He forgave Abram when he had sinned grievously against Sarah and the Lord. Because those who've received grace extend it to others. Those who've received mercy extend mercy to others. And here's what Jesus has done for you. Jesus died for you. He came after you. He died so that you could be forgiven and then turn around and do the same for other people. 
And the easiest and the first place that we can do this is right here in the church. Who are, who are you going after? Who are you extending mercy and grace to? Who are you asking forgiveness from when you mess up? Who, who haven't you seen in a while that you could say, you know what, I need to pick up the phone or I need to go stop by somebody's house. I need to figure out where this person is at and pursue them in the same way that God has pursued you. Who, who in our city or, or our neighborhood do you need to go after? And I really want to challenge you that if you're a follower of Jesus, this may seem a little weird, but just write a person's name down in your journal or in the front of your Bible or in your discipleship plan and pray for that person every single day to come to faith in Christ. Who in our neighborhood do you need to serve? We have opportunities as a church to work with DCF to affect foster care and adoption. We have set up a food pantry at English High School. There are opportunities for us to step in and extend the same love and mercy that we've received. But another component of this is we see in chapter 14, verse 14, the idea of 300 and trained, 318 trained men or trained people. We need to be trained and equipped to go and do the work that God has called us. And some of us are sitting on the sideline waiting for others to do it when we are the trained and equipped person. Some of us, maybe you, you, feel, you don't feel like you are equipped. You don't feel like you've got what it takes to step in and do this. Fill out that yellow next step card. Take the next step to figure out what you could do to be equipped to serve God and to serve others. The life where we give ourselves away in the same way that Jesus has given himself for us is a joyful, life-giving life. So lastly, Abram shows us the last part of repentance is being satisfied in God alone. So we looked at that cycle a minute ago of, of not kind of going back toward ourselves or back toward failure, but being satisfied in God alone. And we see another really strange interlude. We see this mysterious king. Um, and it shows us that you can choose to be satisfied in the joy that God brings. So we see two kings here. We see Melchizedek in chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. And then we see Bera, the king of Sodom. And so Melchizedek in chapter eight, uh, 14, verse 18, it says, that, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And so the, the name Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. And the, the city Salem is almost certainly the city of Jerusalem. And the word Salem is from the word shalom, which means peace. So we have the king of righteousness and the king of peace, who is also a priest of the most high. And he comes as this king, not asking something from Abram, but offering him something. He comes with bread and wine and blessing. And then we see Bera, king of, of Sodom, comes with something completely different. Verse 21, he says to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourselves. A little bit of you get and I get. You give this and I'll give this to you. You, you do enough and I'll bless you. But Abram wants none of that. Verse 22, he says to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hands to the Lord, the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will say nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. And so we see Abram learning from his lesson to be satisfied in God alone. I'm not going to be satisfied in anything else other than the Lord. 
And what's pretty amazing is as you look at the picture of these two kings, you see something really striking, and you see why we should never give ourselves to be satisfied with the world. Melchizedek comes as this king in glory and righteousness and peace. Do you know what the king of Sodom came in? Covered in tar. Look back at chapter 14, verse 10. He fell into a bitumen pit, which would have been building material. He would have come in offering rags to Abraham covered and looking like a hot mess. And when we're offered the trappings and the things of the world to satisfy us, we're being offered lesser things than the King Jesus gives us. And so when it comes to Melchizedek, who is this king and what does this mean? This is a strange passage. We could spend a lot of time on this one passage unpacking all the implications of it. Some believe that he was an ancient king. Some believe that he may have even been Shem, Noah's son. And some even believe because he's the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the priest uh, most high, who Hebrews says had no beginning and no end and no father and no mother, may have actually been Jesus in the Old Testament coming and showing what grace would look like years later. Hebrews 5, 6 says, quoting the Psalms, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What this points us forward to is that the only one who can satisfy you is the one who's the king, the king of peace, the king of righteousness, the priest who can truly forgive your sins. And what this shows us is that Jesus is the better hope. Jesus comes with the better offer. Jesus is the better king that we can draw to. He is the ultimate priest, a priest forever. That Jesus wasn't just generous. He gave himself as the sacrifice for your sins an atoning and enduring sacrifice that he made ultimate peace for us through the work of the cross. And what this means is that today you can draw unto God through Christ. Not because of what you've done, not because you make promises to do better next time, but because of what Jesus has done on your behalf and because of what he offers for you. And that's an invitation for you this morning. Maybe you've been running from the Lord. You're a follower of Jesus, but you've been running. Return. But maybe this morning you don't yet know Christ and you are looking at all your failures and you're like, what do I do with these? Give them to Jesus. Lay them at his feet. Maybe you've been trusting in your good works and your wise decisions. Come to Christ today and trust him.